Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Good morning. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Glad you're here today. Glad you're ready to study the Bible. And uh, we think we've got some answers ready for you. So that's what we're going to do today. And uh, we always have a few new viewers tuning in that wonder what Know Your Bible might be about. Uh, that's all it is, is trying to help people know their Bible a little bit better. And we answer questions for you. So there's a phone number, website at the bottom of the screen. Use either of those anytime. Put you in touch with us and uh, you tell us what you'd like to talk about on Know Your Bible. So that's what we're going to do for the next 30 minutes. Uh, Mr. Toby Levering's back to help me. Good morning, Toby. Good morning, Steve. I'm glad you're here and ready to go. Uh, always got one for our viewers. Just let them work on a little Bible answer. And this one's who was nicknamed The Rock. Uh, I know that's a modern nickname for a pretty famous movie star, but uh, there's one in the Bible that uh, Jesus nicknamed The Rock. So we'll give you the answer to that at the end of the program, see if you and your family knew it. Toby, you got the first one, so let's get to answering questions. Just so we're clear, <laughs> on the trivia, The Rock isn't you or I, right? No. Okay. Got to nope. be a Bible answer. Nope. Okay. Got to be in the Bible. All right. Question number one is, how did the thief on the cross go to heaven if he was not baptized? Okay. Well, this is a question that we receive time to time here on the program, and it really has to do more with what we teach, what the Bible teaches, rather, uh, about how to become a Christian. And uh, we believe the New Testament is very clear on that teaching, that faith, repentance, confession of Christ, and being baptized, being immersed into Christ is uh, part of the plan uh, under New Testament Christianity, under the new covenant that Jesus established. And some people, it's not a, it's not a, a question we haven't had many times before. We'll point to this one example uh, where Jesus uh, promised the thief that today you will be with me in paradise. After he asked him the question uh, or made the request, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so people point to that and say, aha, see, he was, he was saved and he didn't have to be baptized. Well, uh, the problem with that, of course, is that it was uh, under a different covenant, first of all. It was under uh, a different uh, system, a different way. Uh, of course, they didn't... Uh, have any of that practice under the old covenant. That's one of the very common misunderstandings about the Bible is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the difference in the old covenant and the new. And understanding just that very simple fact helps us understand a great deal. Uh, Jesus didn't bring in the new covenant of grace and mercy, uh, the forgiveness of sins that came through him until, of course, he would die and three days later be resurrected. So he's under the old law. And, uh, and, and then the, my second part of the answer is, you know, Jesus had absolute authority to forgive uh, whoever he wanted to and did many times in his ministry in his life. So that wasn't anything new. Uh, he had uh, absolute authority to forgive sins. Um, think of it 
is an imperfect illustration, but how uh, presidents uh, will pardon people. Uh, when they do so, that's not the normal way uh, a criminal or someone who's going through the court process, the proceedings, would not expect that to happen, but the president absolutely has the authority to pardon someone, uh, to declare them not guilty, and to extend to them mercy. Uh, that's just one of the, the uh, uh, things a president may do, and uh, in a, to a much higher degree, of course, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins any way he wanted to. Now, some will point to this as proof that we don't have to be baptized to be saved, uh, that we can just simply ask Jesus for mercy. And I think that is a great disservice to the rest of what Scripture plainly teaches. The point of the story is that up and even up to the very death point of his death, Jesus was a merciful Savior. And he wanted to show people mercy. And that was true both to the thief, by the way, and to us, that he wants to extend to everyone mercy. Uh, of course, we have to choose to be obedient and humble ourselves to what he said to do. So don't let this exceptional story of Jesus forgiving a thief uh, right at the, you know, at the moment when he was about ready to die himself as the standard for um, you, uh, understanding what one must do to be saved. We are all saved by the mercy of Christ, but we believe we have to do what he said to do. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul said, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. True for the thief, true for us under the new covenant today, that when we choose to turn away from sin and call upon the name of the Lord and in faith and obedience be immersed into Christ, we're receiving the very gift of God. All righty. Persons, uh, we're in about the creation and how things happen and what order and says that Genesis says God created light on the first day, but the sun wasn't made until day four. Please explain. Uh, well, let's first of all make sure that our viewers got this correct. So let's look at the scriptures. And I just got a summary of them here. But uh, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, it says it's day 1, and he made light, and he made day and night. Genesis 1 6 says it's day 2, and he made the earth and the heavens. And Genesis 1 14 says it's day 4, and he made the sun and moon and stars. So our viewer got that exactly right made light on day one and sun and moon and stars on day four. Well, the, the difficulty here, not the difficulty, just the thing we're not realizing, is that the sun and moon and, and stars, basically sun and stars, not the moon, it just reflects light, but the sun and stars are a source of light. They're not the only source of light. Light is different than the sun and moon and stars. Sun and stars are a source of light. Uh, we can get light a lot of other places. Uh, the point is, at the beginning, there was nothing. There was not light even existed. And God created light. Now, to explain what light is, scientists are still trying to figure that out. <laughs> they they come, have all sorts of problems trying to figure out exactly what light is. Uh, but God made that on day one. 
And then on day four, he made some sources of light. Not the only sources of light. You can get light from uh, turning on a flashlight or lighting a piece of paper or exploding gunpowder. Lots of things make light. Uh, and as another illustration, Thomas Edison discovered that you could make light by running electricity through a certain kind of filament and heating it up enough that it would produce light. Well, light existed for thousands of years. Edison created a new source of light. That's what happened on day four. God made a source of light. So the creation account is exactly right. God created the <laughs> trying to save the element or something of light. I don't even know what to call it. Light is so special. But he made light. Day one, sun, moon, and stars on day four. All right. Uh, I was hoping you would explain to us exactly what light was. But, oh, well, I guess yeah, we, don't, we don't have time. have to wait for another program. Okay. Uh, next question is, why do you take the Lord's Supper every week? Um, this viewer probably or may be familiar with some of the questions we've received about partaking the Lord's Supper and or in churches of Christ is something that you'll commonly see is that every week uh, they partake of the the, the bread and the, the fruit of the vine as a part of their worship service and that's a peculiarity it's not something that every church does and they may wonder about why is it that we choose to do that every first day of the week well we, of course, know that Jesus established the Lord's Supper when he was first partaking in the last, what's called the Last Supper, the Passover meal, and he changed the meaning of it, uh, what they would commonly have known and understood, and he transferred the meaning to say, this do in remembrance of me. When he took the bread, he said, this is my body. He took the cup, he said, this is my blood. And he, what he was doing was saying, when you partake of this, this is something that's going to have extra special meaning to you now. And that became something that was a practice of the early church. You look at, um, well, in fact, Jesus even himself in Luke 22, which is not on the screen, but if you look it up at home, uh, he says, uh, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I, uh, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he, he showed that this was going to be a part of the practice of the kingdom and, and the people of God, and meaning, of course, the church. In Acts chapter 2, we know that the breaking of bread was a part of the, the, the practice of Christians as they met together collectively to worship, um, and it was just part of their practice. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 7 is another example of uh, a verse that we can look at together. On the first day of the week, the Luke, Luke writes, uh, we came together to break bread. So we understand that this was a command of Jesus. It was a practice of the early church. And so we just do it every first day of the week. Um, and I think it's good because it reminds us, it recenters uh, re us, it reinvigorates us, it, it inspires us, it, it centers us back on where our focus should be about who we serve and uh, kind of helps us think about the week we've had and the week we're going to have. It continually helps us to, 
to think about our Lord and uh, His body, uh, not just the body that died, but His body, the church, and how it works all over uh, the world. So that's why we partake of the supper every week, and we believe it's a very important part. All right, good answer there. Let me talk uh, just a moment about a good way to study the Bible. Uh, you may have noticed, if you're even a first-time viewer of the program, that uh, all of our answers, we almost always show you a scripture. We go to the Bible. So here's what the Bible says about that. Uh, that's because we believe the Bible is God's Word, and that's why we believe people ought to study it, uh, see what God has to say to us. We've got some free materials that will help you study the Bible if you want to get started in Bible study. Um, I know we've got a lot of viewers who are solid old-time Bible students that spend time in the Bible every day and know lots more about it than we do probably. Uh, but we also got a lot of viewers that just haven't ever got started in Bible study. And this is, we've got some good ways to do that. You see a course on the screen right now. There's eight lessons in it. And it uh, comes to you in the mail. So it's private. You can do it in your own home with your own Bible. Nobody bothers you in any way. You can go as fast as you want or as slow as you want. And you learn a lot about the Bible by going through these courses. Uh, when you finish the first eight, we'll get a certificate for you that says you uh, completed that one. And then we've got some more that you can tackle if you want to keep learning about the Bible. Uh, so our free Know Your Bible study materials are a great way to learn about the Bible. And we offer them absolutely free of charge. All you have to do is use that phone number or website. Tell us you'd like that free course, and lesson number one will come to you, and you can take off, and um, in just a little while, you'll know a lot more about your Bible. So take us up on that free offer. All right, got a hard question here. If you wants to know why do people not believe that there's a God? Well, uh, that's a tough question. Why don't people believe there's not a God? Don't believe there's a God? Uh, of course, I personally kind of wonder sometimes if anybody really doesn't believe in God. You know, deep down, you just have to look around and think, eh, I don't know about this. But there are a lot of people that claim to be atheists, uh, some that claim to be agnostics, that say, well, you just can't be sure, and I don't know, uh, and all that. Uh, the Bible does give an answer to that. Uh, it's in chapter 1 of Romans, and let's look what it says. It's talking about wicked people and people that say they don't believe in God. Uh, godless and wicked people is how uh, Paul addresses them. And he says, they suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now let's leave that up for just a second and go back through it. He said people have to suppress the truth about God. They have to suppress that truth because it's so plain. It's been made plain to them. And here's how it's been made plain. Since the creation... His invisible qualities. There's two things you can see from creation. That there's a powerful being, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. All right, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, Paul says, 
it's so evident in creation that some powerful being made this, and it's got to be a divine being to have made all of this, and that's clear to us. So if you look at all that and then say, well, there's no God, you have to suppress the truth. And he ends up by saying there's no excuse <laughs> to not believe that there's a God. Okay. Now, I know there's all sorts of scientific arguments and people uh, talk about evolution and how this could have happened and that could have happened and all that. Uh, but deep down, if you think about it, if you take anything in creation and try to figure out how this came about without a divine power making it this way, uh, you say, oh, that, that couldn't have happened. So that's what Paul says. There, there's an evident truth there. Now, creation doesn't teach us all about God. It just shows us that there's got to be a divine power. And every civilization in the history of the world has figured that out. Uh, they don't know the exact truth about God. They don't know who he is, his name, all of that. But they know a divine power had to have made all this. So that's what Romans 1 says about your question. How can people, why don't people believe in God? They have to choose to. They have to suppress the very clear truth uh, because they have the same problem that Adam and Eve had. Uh, they want to run their own life. Uh, they don't want anybody making rules for them. They don't want God in their life. Uh, they want to make their own choices and do whatever they want and think that it's right. So they suppress the truth about God. So that's the best way I can answer that. Uh, like Paul said, there's really no excuse. <laughs> it's, it's clear. Alrighty. Okay. And next question is uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 and 16. It's very hard for me to understand. Please explain. Well, part of the helpfulness of understanding Scripture is a word we use on this program often, and we'll use the word context. And context is a fancy word for meaning uh, just look at the verses before and after, and and sometimes even just look at the whole chapter, and that you know just pull back a little bit and get a little a wider perspective, and it'll help you understand uh, the confusing, difficult parts. I do appreciate the question because I think it's good to ask about verses that we don't <laughs> understand, and one of the things that we can uh, do in addition to looking at the context is look at other verses in Scripture to help explain parts. That that we don't. Uh, you ask about a specific verse, so I want to put that verse on the screen for us. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and the, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, now that's the verse you asked about, and to help understand that those two verses, I'd like to just read, this won't be on the screen, but read for you the verses right before then. Paul says, in, starting in verse 13 of Second Thess uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, he, I need to understand a little bit, he's talking about those who have died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen 
asleep or died in Jesus. Now, he's explaining to the church at Thessalonica, perhaps as a result of a question that they had, you know, hey, we thought we thought the Lord was, was going to return, and yet we have some of our number who have died. What's going to happen to them? And they, they use this term, fallen asleep here, which is a common way of saying um, that this person has passed away. They've died. And uh, they wanted to know what about these people who've died before the Lord returns. And Paul's simply addressing and saying, uh, you don't have to worry about them. Uh, do not grieve that, uh, first of all, they're in a better place than we are. Uh, and he goes on to say, pointing to the resurrection day, the last day, that the dead in Christ will rise first when Jesus does return. Uh, after that, those who are alive at that time will join the rest of the saints in Jesus. The message here, and it, of course as we read it, we think about dying and the day of the Lord and how all that's going to work. And these verses don't fully explain every detail of that. The point that Paul's trying to make is, we, verse 14, <clears throat> uh, we, you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. His point is, whether you're alive or whether you've died, when you're in Christ, uh, you have hope. And there's a, a day you can look forward to, whether you're alive or whether you've uh, died, that you can have hope because the day of the Lord will come and you can be encouraged. And it's part of his larger message to the church, uh, don't give up. Uh, don't don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. Uh, stay true to the Lord that you are serving and uh, keep the faith no matter what happens. So I believe that's the message and that's the meaning. Uh, always look at context for understanding. All right. Good idea. Good suggestion. All right. A question about alcohol. Viewer says, I thought you taught it was not right to drink alcohol. Uh, in one answer, I got the idea you thought it was all right. Please comment. Well, of course, it is possible that we didn't speak clearly, that we didn't explain things very well in some answer. That, uh, that does occasionally happen, <laughs> not very often, but it happens. Uh, but probably more likely we had a question, and I don't know exactly which one. We probably had a question about, uh, is it a sin to taste alcohol? Is it a sin to take a drop of alcohol or something? Uh, and to answer that question, we'd have to say, no, it's not sinful to take a drop of alcohol. Uh, it's not a hell-guaranteeing sin to do that. If so, we'd have to get rid of our NyQuil and things like that. Um, but we do overall teach that drinking alcohol is not a good idea. And uh, we usually try to show exactly what the Bible says. So let me put a little chart up that kind of summarizes what the Bible says about alcohol. And the Bible says some very positive things about alcohol. Ecclesiastes 9.7 says, drink your wine with joy. It's a blessing from God. And now, wine back then was a lot different than the distilled spirits that we have today. But uh, still, uh, the juice of the grape is a blessing from God, the Bible says. But the Bible also says a lot of negative things about alcohol. Read Proverbs chapter 23 toward the end. And it says the wine sparkles in a glass, but it, in the end it bites like a serpent. And there's all sorts of terrible things that the proverb writer says about alcohol will get you. It's bad stuff. Uh, the Bible definitely says drunkenness is sinful. Uh, that is definitely a sin. The Bible also says don't be mastered by anything. 
And if you've lived more than a year or two in this world, you know that alcohol masters people and destroys their lives. And finally, the Bible talks about our influence as Christians, uh, what people see and uh, learn from us. And so certainly staying away from alcohol is the best influence in this world. So the Bible says all of those things about alcohol. Uh, so to answer our viewers' questions, yes, we do teach against drinking alcohol. and uh, It's a dangerous thing, uh, but we can't say that taking a sip is a hell-guaranteeing sin. So maybe that's the way we answered it. Let me take this moment and invite you to visit a Church of Christ near you. We're sponsored and produced by Churches of Christ. And uh, today, let me just mention the home church of Know Your Bible, right here in Wichita, the Northside Church of Christ. If you're ever traveling through Wichita or maybe you live here, uh, drop in and see us sometime. We'd be happy to meet you. I always have a few guests from uh, the viewers that want to come see what Northside's about, so come see us sometime. But uh, whatever market you're watching in, probably a church of Christ near you, drop in and uh, give them a visit. Tell them you heard about them on Know Your Bible. All right. The next question a viewer wants to know is, are there three levels of heaven? And the answer to that is no. Uh, it has to do with uh, how the word heavens, how we use that in our language. This this question is likely coming from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. We'll look at it on the screen. Paul wrote these words. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. The question is, what is this third heaven and what is that all about? Well, in Jewish culture, the understanding of heaven, they had three levels. The first was where the birds fly, what we would call the sky. The second is heavens in the terms of where the sun, the moon, and the stars are, what we would call outer space or the universe, the galaxy. And then uh, the third heaven was where God and celestial beings dwell, what we would call heaven. And so it's just our, our way in which we use the word has changed. But Paul is describing a vision that he himself had about what it was like to go to that third heaven. And he basically said, it's amazing and I'm not even, it's so good, I'm not even allowed to tell you about it. It is beyond words to tell you how good that heaven is. So uh, that's what heaven, there's only one heaven where God resides, but um, the Jewish culture and how they wrote about it and thought about it, they had the, the three different levels, and we just described that differently today. So he's describing where God resided, and I'm sure excited about it because <laughs> whew, sounds like it's going to be good, but uh, we don't get to know about it till we get too, there. Too good to even talk about That's it. That's right. Uh, I think I can answer this one real quick. Viewer wants to know how can you be ordained to do weddings, etc. Well, every denomination has their own rules and qualifications and all of that, uh, and the laws in every state are different. Uh, Kansas, you really don't have to be ordained uh, to do a wedding. All you got to do is sign the certificate. Uh, kind of strange law to me, but that's the way it is. Uh, but you can get ordained pretty easily and cheaply. I looked online and here's one place you can go if you want to get ordained. Uh, go to the Welcome to Open Ministry, get ordained for free and perform legal weddings. So uh, it's, it's a little looser than some people might think. Uh, you can get ordained in all sorts of ways. Of course, uh, like I say, it depends what state you're in, and I guess we better do a disclaimer. We do not dispense legal advice. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's make sure we get a trivia question answered today. Who was nicknamed The Rock? 
Uh, the answer to that is not Dwayne Johnson, uh, somebody else, and actually it's not Peter, which uh, some people would think it was Simon. His nickname was Peter. <clears throat> Peter means the rock. And Jesus told Simon that he said, from now I'm going to call you Peter because you're a rock. So that was who was nicknamed that. We're glad you've been with us today and uh, hope we get your question answered. If not, we're going to be back next week trying to answer some more. So uh, we'll invite you to be back then. Until then, we hope that you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.